Hello and welcome to In Person with Paul on Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And here I interview authors about their latest novels. My guest today is Canadian author Vern Smith, now living in the US. His novel Scratching the Flint is an excoriating account of violent crime, corruption and policing in Toronto just prior to 9-11. I first ran into Vern Smith when he sent me a collection of shorts he'd edited for Runamuck Books, which was called Jacked. That anthology had both heart and originality. So when I heard that he was about to publish a new novel, I invited him on the show. When I read the novel, the questions just came tumbling out. Vern addresses issues of policing in a page-turning novel, but with a depth that's pretty rare. Certainly in a way that we rarely examine policing in this country in our crime fiction. So he has a lot to say that's relevant and thought-provoking. So let's hear what Vern Smith has to say on Scratching the Flint. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Vern. Thank you for having me, Paul. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure. You're a native Ontarian. I want to start with it's a slightly odd question, but I, I think it kind of goes to the, to the novel as well, to be honest. But um, you lived a long time in Toronto. You come from a more rural background. You now live on the outskirts of Chicago. Um, we kind of need cities, but it's also nice to have that space out of town, isn't it? It is, and particularly at this point in history, I've whenever I've lived in a city, I've always lived in the heart of the heart of the heart of the city, and that's always been important to me because that's where all the vibrancy is. It's where all the life is, particularly in Toronto. When we moved here, I was initially um, a little bit fighty, for lack of a better word, um, mm. uh, about um, not living in the core of Chicago. And uh, so we moved here, we made uh, a compromise and then the pandemic hit. And so I was particularly happy at that point not to be living in the heart of the heart of the city uh, where I am out here about 25 minutes outside of Chicago is, you know, sort of where rural meets urban. And um, it's, uh, it's an appropriate time in my life, I think, to be having that experience. In Canada, we would say, these are your Carlsberg years. And I don't know if that will translate uh, internationally. But um, so, so yes, I've, uh, it's, it's a new life here. It's a slightly rural life. And uh, at this point in history, it's exactly where I want to be. Yeah, it was kind of Mitchell in Green Ghetto that kind of put me in mind of that question, you know, the guy who seeks solitude. Yes, and, and that's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned him. Uh, he's, I think, um, one of my characters that, that people have connected with mm. most in terms of uh, likability, if you will. And uh, obviously, I did not have a marijuana plantation in Michigan, um, but there are some fairly autobiographical elements in there right. in terms of um, worldview. Uh, Mitchell is more comfortable with his animals than he is mm. humans. And I, I think I share a little bit of that. And, um, you know, very much wants to be his own man on his own land. He wants to be his own person. And it's, it's something that I think I've fought for at different points in my life. Um, somebody who was very close to me in the 90s once said I was fiercely my own person. And uh, it's right. something 
I appreciated that was said, and I, I I think my fiction is fiercely my own fiction as a result, and and that, that that's sort of how we land here literarily, I guess. Yeah, no, I got, I got a sense of that. Um, well, when we first contacted each other, it was over the you edited a crime collection, a crime fiction anthology called Jack. The thing you said at the introduction was the law has to be fractured. That was the only rule, and it led to a really diverse collection. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that, but also that process. I mean, you wound up with just over 20 stories, but you had to whittle that down from 400. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly correct. I I think I have um, uh, a different foundation um, than most quote-unquote crime writers. And in fact, I I fell backwards into crime fiction. I was uh, in Toronto in the 90s. I was writing a lot of fiction short stories just about the city. And of course there, you know, is a fair bit of crime in the city, but yeah. it was by and large um, not genre. And it's, it's because of the, the people I, I read, I, as much as I um, adore and respect Elmore Leonard and, and Mickey Splain and a whole bunch of other people, I didn't start with them. I started right. with um, growing up in Windsor. I, accidentally came across a Donald Goins novel at a store oh, yeah. um, in 1982, I believe. And uh, so I would have been approximately 17 at that point. And, um, it, it, you know, I, I, I don't entirely know why I bought it other than I was just fascinated with a story that was so close to me um, geographically. And the thing that mm really struck me there and Goins is not genre in the sense that you would normally think of crime fiction um and the thing that really blew away blew me away about his work is that he was writing about a world that was literally about three miles from my home Mm. but on some level was worlds away and uh that led to Clarence Cooper Jr um iceberg slim i'm looking in canada because i'm canadian now yeah right uh, stephen reed roger karen uh evelyn lau who is decidedly not a crime uh crime writer mm. in terms of genre but uh was a, a runaway and so a lot of the things surrounding her work um uh, you know sort of touched upon crime in terms of uh, runaway issues, abuse issues, uh, substance issues, um, uh, prostitution, things like that, and so I, I was, I was always fascinated with that aspect of literature, and started to, in my own work, get opportunities in in crime fiction. Ended up in some um, pretty seminal Canadian crime anthologies, and you know, I really wasn't like uh, a genre guy mm. and so, so uh, one of my um viewpoints is i was i was seeing things early on written by people who were on the other side of the law and it wasn't so much that i had a fantasy to be on the other side of the law i certainly don't have the stomach for it and right i haven't had any issues myself but uh th- this was this was stuff that that was resonating with me and and from there you know then i i you know i remember i found a copy of freaky deaky for 25 cents and i can still see the cover uh price clipped um paperback pretty beat up mm. but contact on young street in toronto of all places and that's where i started reading elmore leonard and started getting more into the into the genre side of it but um 
Yeah. The the only when I'm when I'm judging Jacked, when I'm looking at stories for Jacked, I'm looking for range, just as I would mm. be in my own collection of short stories. And and so I I don't think I think there are very few people um, over the last uh, 20, 30 years that have been as critically critical of police as I have, both in terms of my own work, uh, both in terms of fiction and my work as a journalist. But at the same time, um, there are a couple of cops in Jacked, and that was important to me. And at the same time, I was reaching out to um, prison writer groups, uh, incarcerated writer groups, formerly incarcerated right. writer groups, wh- however you want to put it. And and uh, that is, you know, that's from both being a journalist and both from my literary, found- literary foundation as a reader in terms of discovering Goins, Lau, uh, all the people I mentioned at the top. So um, the, the chief thing about Jack is I was looking for range as as much as I could grab it. And I was looking for geographic range. I was looking for range in terms of uh, age. And um, certainly we had uh, five uh, decades of crime writers. Yeah. In there and i was very pleased with that and we had people from a lot of perspectives uh people with perspectives on both sides of the law and to me that's what that's what crime writing is all about I, I will be critical of police um and i i will also say that um you know you are an individual there are on honorable individuals at all levels of the civil service including police and uh you know whoever you are I wanted to hear from you. And I, th- that's just the way I've been my whole literary life. I appreciate what you're saying. And I, I, I'm i I'm proud of what I was able to bring to the table in Jack in terms of the range these 21 writers were able to give us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, for me, I like the idea of, of looking at crime in this much broader concept of crime anyway. Um, mm-hmm. and But also this was a winner. This this um, book was a winner of a prize too. Yes, we won the I, and I'm delighted with the award that we won because it's so naughty. Um, we won the uh, Chinoski Award right. from the Independent Fiction Alliance. And um, uh, Chinoski is, of course, uh, for lack of a better term, Bukowski's alter ego. Right, yes. And I, I read a fair bit of Bukowski in the, the 90s, and it's just sacrilege to read it now. I was having a conversation with Matt Phillips uh, two or three weeks ago. And uh, the first, uh, it's it's back in the bookshelf, I forget the title, but the first Bukowski, um, I believe it's something along the lines of sometimes you just feel so all alone. Close enough anyways, and it's a book of poetry. And it was given to me by an academic feminist, and, and her name is still um, written on, on the inside. And so it was at, at that point in history, and I'm married to an academic feminist, um, at, at that point of history, it was not uncommon for academic feminists to read Bukowski, to talk about Bukowski critically, yeah, right. to talk about Bukowski from a fan point of view, um, to talk about the importance of his work, and you know, to sort of sort of uh, pick it apart and break it down and, and and try to understand it and try to understand why it was important. So, so uh, you know, fast forward to twenty twenty three. I I haven't. Um, read a word of Bukowski, I don't think, since the 90s, but I do remember spending time with those books. So I was absolutely geeked and delighted that that, that was the award that we won, and I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. 
Yeah, and it's not where it ends because uh, that led to you becoming an editor at large at Runamuck Books as well, didn't it? Yes, it did, and uh, it's it's I've I've always um, you know whether officially or unofficially I've always really enjoyed curation, and uh, I'm among other things a, a former radio DJ and mm-hmm. more, more importantly a, a, a listener. Um, I, I've never been a musician um, and have no ambition to. Some people should just listen, and I'm one of those yeah. people. And um, so I, I was always very good, even as a kid, about finding my own culture, going to the Sam the Record Band down, downtown in Windsor, uh, taking chances on um, uh, seven inches from bands I never heard before and right. taking them home and listening to them and finding my own stuff. And and so it's 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 a, to me it's 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 a natural transition in terms of i took the same mindset um uh curating jacked and working with our fabulous senior editor at ronald Krista winsheimer and uh so so being an editor at large now i've already brought in a few manuscripts that that are um going to be published over the next couple of years looking at places where most people aren't um I think that we have this notion that, you know, the 30 mouthiest writers on social media are, you know, basically make up crime writing or the literary world or whatever, and they don't. And the reality is, um, you know, with Jacked, we, we had, we had about, we had about three we had exactly 370 submissions through submittable another 10 came from email and i had uh 20 other um uh obscure uh, reprints to choose from given the amount of submissions we received we went entirely with first run work um i'll put it against any anthology any crime fiction anthology that was um published in 2022 and uh i i do believe that that uh the range these people bring is going to be tough to beat nobody got a favor everybody had to earn their way in and everybody did i I gotta say it was one of my favorites i think sometimes the problem with anthologies is they have no heart you know they, they can have good stories in them even but they just don't they don't click right the stories put together and i think that's a disaster anyway we look forward to to what you're going to bring to us with Run Amuck, but let's talk about your fiction now, specifically Scratching the Flint. Start by telling us a little bit about Scratching the Flint, please, if you would, Vern. Well, essentially, it's a uh, it's a story about um, stolen cars and stolen vintage cars and 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 their parts, and uh, there's an investigation into this ring and uh charges are forthcoming and all of a sudden um crown witnesses end up not just murdered but mocked and uh one of one of the uh it opens up with um uh one of the detectives Mm. uh childhood friends um being killed in a most gruesome way i don't know how much i should give away or not but he's necklaced which means uh Tire soaked in gasoline is is put up over his shoulders and uh, lit on fire. And um, so about one of the most terrifying ways I think you can go. You know, I, I'm not I suggesting the, there are good ways, but well, yeah, <laughs> some ways are better than others. I would imagine <laughs> that, that's you know, 
that that's not the way one would choose no and um you know i i think from there what we get into is is institutional failure and um problems in terms of the police operating issues around gatekeeping issues around priorities uh issues around influence and influence in terms of mm. what's important and incompetence and and things along those lines and uh when cecil uh who i guess is the chief protagonist in the book yeah. um, when uh when when he doesn't feel that this is going anywhere um he's a fraud cop he's not a homicide cop this has this has has nothing to do with him and he has no business being involved in it and he involves himself uh which we call freelancing which is another um aspect of institutional failure within the police service and uh basically starts his own investigation and uh um once he starts into whole new areas Yes, yes, he takes matters into his own hands, and and that's not it's not uncommon. Um, and and there were a lot of things that were going on. I was when I was in Toronto at that time. I was living in the core of the city, and I was also covering police. And there were some mm. just breathtaking examples of malfeasance. And again, and this is the last time I'll say this. I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for saying this too. But um, you know, there are. There, there, there are excellent officers in every mm-hmm. area trying to do honorable work, and uh, at the same time, you have to understand that back then, and I believe still now, uh, there are subcultures within the police community who are operating on on absolutely inhuman levels. And you know, the three examples that that come to mind: one, um, you had a squad within the Toronto Force that was running around all night extracting sexual favors from trans right, workers who right. were likely out there um to pay for their surgeries or to pay for addiction or something mm. along those lines and uh there was another example thomas kerr who was a homeless man who i was actually aware of uh previous to this and somebody who probably shouldn't have been on the street without a minder he had an altercation with an officer uh broke the officer's arm um shortly thereafter a, a group of eight or so officers gathered him up brought him down to cherry beach and literally beat the hell out of him and and then we get into the paul bernardo situation who's one of our um most prolific uh sex killers and yeah. um, this is touched th- these things are all touched upon in scratching with flint and um um bernardo the the bernardo was in Niagara region, but committing a lot of his crimes in Toronto. He was committing crimes in both Toronto and Niagara. And uh, he was allowed to exist on the streets for a longer period of time because the Toronto police and the Niagara police weren't cooperating. And and they were actually, it got so bad, they were talking trash with each other on the phone. And during Mm -hmm. that, you know, during during the interim, um, you know, he went on to do more more dastardly things until they finally did catch up with him yeah. so um you know there are some people that that um and this is okay uh there there are some people who thought that scratching the flint was satire and and that's fine i don't care why you like it you know as long as you like it i'm i'm pleased but to me it's ultra realism 
in terms of these are the things that were going on at the time. And this is what makes a detective like Cecil plausible. And um, while there are levels upon which one can sympathize with him and his plight, um, it's it's it, it's not we're not getting justice when no, it's, it's it this, is, this failure in the system yes, is yes. is wrecking society. And that's something I, I want to talk to, about, certainly just as a general note. You obviously have the passion for this. You did work all those years as a reporter as well. And you, you do tell a story in a way that I really haven't seen before. Police corruption comes into novels. Of course it does. But you, you're putting a story together. You know, it almost feels like The Wire. You know how they, they put bits and pieces together. You get the education right. sector and you get, and at the end of it, you get this overall picture. And I get the feeling that that's what you're building, this picture. So I take it from your point of view that it really was, you know, the energy and the drive comes from a real desire to talk about these issues. Oh, very much so. Um, and, and I think uh, the, the sort of, um, the thing that pushed me to finish it, this was, I, I found this when I was putting together my short story collection, The Gimmick. I had just, I right. did not have an electronic copy of it anymore. I found it in a box and um, I, I, I put it aside. It was a 27,000 word novella. Right. And I, I felt it could be a full length, um, particularly after uh, not doing anything with it for so many years. And uh, the thing that really drove me to finish it were the um, anti-police actions roughly between 2016 and 2020. And uh, um, what was going on here, and I want to be very, very crystal clear and specific. Um, I'm talking about the reporting Mm. in this country on the anti-police actions during that time. And... um, now, people on the ground floor of these uh, actions were talking about all the things that lead to institutional failure, particularly institutional failure in in our police mm. and our police um, our police forces. And uh, the the most obvious thing in this country is um, America. Up until the twenty twenty, I'm sorry, up until the twenty twenty election, and for many years previous. Um, private prison interests have right. been uh, uh, donating huge amounts of money to both the main political parties in this country, and uh, you know it's it's it, it, it that gives them a seat at the table that gives them influence, and and you know what they want is they want their private prisons full, and they want policy that keeps them full, and and um, you know they get that. Uh, just as big healthcare does in this country, mm. um, through through making huge donations to these parties, and it's it's impolite in this country. I'm in America um, right now to to talk about where political parties get their money. Mm. And, um, we had briefly, um, anyways, just just to finish that thought, the coverage of this sort of degenerated into bad cop no donut and um they they were not they were not getting at the issues and the issue the the key issue here to me is influence influence over policy procedure and law itself and we weren't talking about those things in by and large in the reports no right you know we were again you know we were we were just 
talking about bad cop, no donut. Now, back home in Canada, where the story's set, uh, we did briefly have a private prison. It was such a blip in our history, and it was gone by the time, long gone by the time um, I got back to this novel. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I couldn't, I, I felt like I was kind of cherry picking if I used that. And at the same time, if I used that, people would say, well, you don't have any private prisons anymore. Problems. Yeah, right. And it's, that's not that's not the case. Influence is is um, bought and exerted in many ways, whether it's through your uh, local police officers union donating to certain candidates or or, you know, people who do have interests in seeing a lot of people in jail, um, people who expect their part of town to be squeaky clean, um, getting a lot of petty things and people going to jail over petty matters. Yeah. And uh, th- this is this is to me what inspired the story to be finished. It was already sort of tracking towards a document of institutional failure. So I just let myself go in that direction. I was careful not to um, cherry pick the future, but having lived some time after the story set, and the story set in April, May of 2001. Just pre-9-11. The the time between allowed me to see what the important elements were in this story in terms of institutional failure, and so I just let myself go in that direction. Yeah. So I see. So, yeah, I can see now how it would have changed the way that you finished the novel, obviously added the, the extra 40 odd thousand words and wound up with this novel. There's, a, there's one thing that comes in between that, of course, that's the gimmick. And that's Alex and Cecil, who appear as characters, first of all, yes. in gimmick, which you mentioned um, satire. And I'm, I don't think we're talking satire with this story. I agree with what you said about ultra realism, if you like. The, uh, on the other hand, the gimmick is a slightly more satirical kind of story, and it's it's slightly mm. more surreal. So, what was it that brought these two characters into what is now a hard boiled literary novel? Well, I, I I think I I met them briefly. I didn't meet them, but I saw them. Um, it, it was back when I was working in Toronto, uh, covering this stuff as a reporter, right. and and I I had been to a press conference. I can't remember what the press conference was about. And um, picked up my press releases, uh, uh, and and went to a cafe called Franz, which is is mentioned um, in Scratching with Flint, and it, it may even be mentioned in the gimmick. It's been so long since I read the gimmick, um, but you know. So I went there, went over my notes, and a couple of tables over there was there were um, there was a, a senior black detective, right, and uh, um, uh, junior. Um, white detective, white detective yeah. who, who was younger than me at the time. He was, he was, I, I think he was. Anyways, I took him to be in his late twenties. I guess I was in my late thirties. Anyways, um, he was incredibly mouthy and disrespectful to his senior officer, and I, I was already sort of playing around with the story, the gimmick, and I, I said to myself, "There's, there's Alex and Cecil right there," and. Um, oddest thing i swear we went to we went to cuba um around that time and and the the alex character ended up on my beach you know it was a flight <laughs> up and, and so that i i didn't really i he looked at me a couple of times and you know i felt like he knew me from somewhere and i was afraid he thought 
you know, was um, from his job somewhere on the streets. But uh, <laughs> so so um, and there was a story that came out of that called um, an international incident. And uh, so I've I've written about them three times. Uh, the novels actually obviously uh, a, a more important work than the other two, although the gimmick was um, shortlisted for uh, an Arthur Ellis Award, uh, mm. Canadian Prime Writers Award. And um, so I, I don't know what I had in mind at that time, but using the short stories to develop them and develop, uh, for example, the Sandra character, Alex's uh, girlfriend yeah, right. in Scratching the Flint, was was very valuable to me um it sort of have bits here and there of them um uh, but it they came together through that i don't want to say interaction because i didn't really interact with them but through through that observation and um i've i've you know it, it's it's there's there's obviously a serious aspect of writing about these gentlemen um but i've i've had a lot of fun spending time in their heads um um sort of facilitating arguments about their clothes music yeah well and there is fun in the book around that as well yeah and and, and actual policing so yeah. um so so that's where they came from yeah what you didn't do with this book was worry at all about the mystery element and we were talking earlier oh. about what constitutes a crime book you weren't interested in that but i think i don't think the story would have worked as well i think what you would have done was you would have distracted from the purpose of the story, in a sense, almost, if you decided to go down some mystery route and we were trying to find out who was behind the necklacing, for instance. Well, I, I, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I, I don't believe I've ever written a mystery. Mm. Uh, I, I would say I write crime fiction and the mystery is, you know, who's going to live and who's going to die and who's going to get away with what. Um, and so it's very important to me that I hold my cards close and all that so that the reader can't can't figure it out but uh scratching the flint did start off as a mystery uh the twenty-seven thousand word novella right that, that i um worked did originally mm. it was it was it was a mystery and and i decided i looked at it and i decided the threads held together and that i liked it but i also decided that i had a conversation with myself i said you don't write mystery you've never written mysteries before and um, you know, you need to go back to your crime fiction roots, mm. on, I guess, and uh, turn it into a crime fiction novel. That allowed me to um, further develop my criminal characters and I had a lot of fun developing Jean-Max Ronaldo. And uh, so so it, it, it became a, a proper crime novel as opposed to a mystery novel. And I, I, I think that's I think that's best for me um i'm i'm not obviously there have been some great outstanding mysteries written um but uh there have also been a lot of mysteries where i've been able to figure things out a little bit too early and i just said no you don't you don't write mystery you write crime make this a crime novel and develop your criminal characters who are in the shadows now and it'll work that way and, and i i'm glad i did that yeah, and no, I'm glad you did that too. From a fiction point of view, do you think there's, when you're working as a journalist, you can only say so much of a story, you know, there's only so many words on a page, there's, as you pointed out, sort of angles to it in terms of society as well and the way society looks at issues, because the press is very much an inside. It's not right. always on the outside. Right. Do you think in fiction you can kind of get under the skin more? 
with this novel, for instance? I, I do. And um, I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I was an old school, hard nosed reporter. I, I worked very hard at keeping myself out of the story. Um, I don't, I never believed that objectivity was obtainable. Um, but I, I said to myself, you can be fair. And uh, that benefits the reader. It, mm. it was it was never my job to lecture you. It was never my job to sort of poo on somebody. It was just these are the facts and um, exposing things. And you make up your own mind as to um, you know how you feel about this and what your opinion on this of the this issue is it's it's not my job to establish my your opinion and i think that there's an aspect of that that remains in my fiction at, at the same time um i i did once i started getting into fiction in a serious way i did sort of have to retrain retrain myself to write um right my, my first collection of fiction glue for breakfast uh somebody said um you know they, they really liked the book but frustratingly uh they didn't they didn't know what the main character was feeling often enough right. and or what they were thinking and um and and i don't think that's what sort of jogged me to go deeper i i think i just you know as things went on you write more fiction um hopefully you get better at it you get a little bit smarter at it and so so it's it's a, a completely um different thing for me i was never a me journalist i was never a columnist i never quite frankly wanted to be i always prided myself on being a a digger at a workhorse and um and um finding things out discovering um discovering abuses of power writing about them and letting the chips fall where they may and uh that was my mindset going into that um where this i obviously have a little bit more freedom to uh you know sort of move the chairs around mm. and um and and play with that and and get at things on a much deeper level i i i do think i've i've gotten to a place where where my work does have a depth and i'm i'm not one of these people who are going to put out 40 novels and that's never been my ambition yeah right you know if if i put out three novels these three novels and step off a curb tomorrow i i feel like i can stand pat i i think one of the things that really benefited me is is all three of my novels were started well before 2010 and in 2010 i took a radio job i always wanted mm -hmm. and um I thought I would write on weekends and evenings and things like that. And it was just 27, 24, seven, 365. I didn't write a word <laughs> of fiction for, you know, six and a half years. And, and by the time I came back to all that, particularly the green ghetto, um, I'd been thinking about it all that time. And I've been thinking about these stories and these issues. And so my three novels have almost 20 years of consideration spent so much time considering the work and considering the issues that that I've been able to get at things uh, on a much deeper level than the average rabbit. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree entirely. 
I think one of the things you mentioned there, just to, because I was going to mention it later anyway, is about character. And not the main characters, actually. I was interested in Sondra, for instance, and, and even Venus and Milky Way. You obviously work a lot on uh, sm- characters who are not on a page for very long, if you like, because mm. they come on with very rounded presences. And that's important because they're part in the story. Venus, let's say, is a victim at one point. And we have to feel that. You know, you're very good at bringing those small characters to life in, in very crisp sentences. Well, th- thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, Venus, in particular, um, was that that was um, that was actually she did not, as far as I know, uh, suffer some demise uh, along the lines of scratching the flint. But uh, she was um, an actual person from the right. Greeks. That there was when I lived in Kensington Market in the late nineties. There was this bar around the corner called the Greeks, and hmm. it. Portrayed exactly as it is in the book, I think. And I, I remember um, being at the bar, and and she came sat next to me at the bar, and you know, I we introduced each other, and she said her she was Venus de Milo, and in my head, I said, of course you are, you know. And, <laughs> um, and and so so I, I I'm usually drawing on something. I'm seldom drawing on right. anything that direct. Um, but uh, you know, one of the one of the great things about living in a you know such an international city mm. as Toronto is is that I I was always you know meeting people on both sides of the law and people who are neutral um you know on on in some cases on an hourly basis and it's it's one of the things I really miss about that place and time um but uh it was it was it was such an ideal city to write from um, I mean, you could just go grab a coffee and sit in the window and people watch on Young Street and, right. and things would things would come to you. So it was so eclectic. It was there was so much range in terms of ethnicity, style, uh, interest, food, etc. And um I I really I I I I really value the time. That I spent there, and in fact, um, almost everything I've published was started there, and uh, I, I I couldn't have had a better place to write from. Yeah, I want to talk about Toronto. Just want to say one thing before we do: that you could start out with the idea that there's car theft, and it's a crime novel related to the crime. We find out very quickly that's not the case. It's more related to the policing and what goes on around the crime. And then we get somewhere down to a halfway through the novel, let's say, and something happens. And if it wasn't clear to you that this is less about the crime and more about the policing mm-hmm. than this one particular event, and I don't want to spoil that for people, makes that absolutely perfectly clear. So just looking at that crime before we start talking about some of these policing aspects, the landscape, Toronto, you've just been explaining a little bit about it. It almost comes across as a sort of a, an old Wild West place. You know, the, the, the gangs and the, the, the way that... Um, it's a battleground almost, and the biggest gang is the police, I suppose. But well, it, it's it's you know there, there's there's a fine line between um, crime fiction and western fiction, and and certainly mm. um, there there is an aspect of that, and I think in in a very real on a very real level that that is true of Toronto's history. I think Toronto was mm. uh, you know Toronto was sort of at one point uh, a western town. And um, 
the aspects of the gangs and and the the police and the police behavior and you know god knows all the dookie the rest of us caused just doing mischief um it, it was it was very much like that and and uh uh it's it's not toronto's not new york toronto's not the city that that never sleeps but mm. You know, no, it's a big city, though, isn't it? Tech and, and entertainment and multicultural. I mean, yes, yes. And, and come Thursday night, you know, it's an absolute zoo. There, there, there were a lot of times, um, you know, particularly when there would be a big sports win, where things would be completely and utterly out of control. And uh, I could see it from my balcony, could hear it from my bed. And um, I wouldn't go so far as to say Toronto was a wild city. But there are times during every week where it is. That was certainly my experience. There, there, were, there were times to go out and there were times to stay home. Yeah, and that goes to how uh, the policing happens in the city and also how, how the city is, is kind of determining its own policing, but then how the policing reacts to that. I want to start with Doyle then. These are kind of artificial breakdowns. I'll tell you that now because they don't split up nice and easy like this. But let's start with this one. Doyle, who's at the start of the novel, is actually going to plead. He wants yeah. a way out. And he's not allowed to have that by Jean Max, the gangster, who's the car dealer, the guy who's stealing these high-end cars. And um, in this case, money's the corrupter. Mm. And then it's interesting to figure out the motives of why he's come forward and decided to kind of give up, if you like, or, or to, he wants to relieve his own guilt and so on. But that's one aspect of it. Now, in terms of the crime, it seems to me that with Jean Max, this is you chose car theft, and maybe that was particularly important in this you know city at this time. But one of the things that struck me about that was the kind of violence that this initiates. People might assume could happen with drug trafficking, or it could happen with people trafficking crimes. We assume are violent, but in a sense, I suppose what I'm asking is: Are you almost saying that money will determine, you know, the the, the level of violence, the level that gangs will go to? If if it is enough, enough money involved, I suppose in a sense. Well, I, I, I certainly money's. You know, I, I say once a day at least uh, when discussing an issue, follow the money, and um, money's almost always in the mix. Um, but I, I do think that there's a lot of ego in here, and a lot of mm. uh, um, there's a thirst for vengeance. Yeah, maybe maybe I put that in a bad way. Maybe what I should have said was. Isn't it interesting how we're all compromised as human beings? Every yes. relationship is a compromise. But it's interesting to think how people, I mean, nobody joins the police force, I assume, to be a corrupt cop, unless it's the departed. You know, I mean, mostly it's honestly about you've got good motives. Right. But how does somebody then wind up where they have become compromised to the level where they've just accepted this? I think you're absolutely right. I think that that most people get into it with good intentions, and and I think that um, people get into situations where they need money. Um, you know, particularly in this country where there's there's no health care or people have right. got them yeah, yeah. over the head with with a gambling situation or or something like that um but it 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 really it, it doesn't take much i mean you know i'm told that that there's situations half an hour from here you know where where people are getting shot over something they they put on social media about somebody yeah right and, and so so i i don't think it it takes 
it, it doesn't take that much for a situation to turn into violence. And you get into a situation where, as you say, you're compromised, you know, and one thing sort of leads to another and sort of leads to another. And in Cecil's case, he gets to the point where he very quickly, where he doesn't believe that the system will properly address this problem. And right. so so in in his case, that's what's pushing him over the edge. But it, it's also, um, there's a lot of petty corruption. And uh, it's, it's really, you know, it, it really is a, a slippery slope. Um, a lot of the petty corruption in the book is can go sideways pretty quickly additionally and i mean alex is skimming on his um mileage mm. and, and things like that it's not you know it doesn't sound like a big deal and it's, it's probably not but it is a slippery slope and um by the end of the book that's something that that compromises him and in terms of you know being able to keep keep the lid on Cecil because Cecil's you know using it using it against him right and um, so I, I I think the I think the reality is is that that um, as human animals we are prone to violence and there's a lot of violence that's sort of endorsed and encouraged as a as a big person who was a, a, a young hockey player. I mean, I was always encouraged to do things um, yeah. that I wouldn't do now, you know, as as uh, a grown-ass man. Try getting away from that and, and try, um, you know, rethinking how you're going to handle confrontation, how thinking how you're going to cross, uh, deal with people who've double-crossed you or whatever. And um, obviously, you have to be a, um, a cerebral individual. I, I don't think everybody's capable of that. And mm. I think that some situations just get so far out of control that, that you know people think that that's the only way to save themselves or the only way to resolve an issue. And certainly... And they keep digging holes, yeah. They keep digging holes. And and certainly, um, you know, on one side of the law, Cecil is one of those people. On the other side of the law, Jean Max is another one of those people. Mm. The, the curious thing about John Max is that he's um he's a he's a maniac. Yes. Um, and it's only because he steps so far over the mark that you feel his comeuppance is in the in the possibility. You know, it's almost as if he just stayed within the bounds that everybody kind of thought was okay. This could have all just carried on. It could have. You're absolutely correct. There's one small, this is a very small point, but I just was curious. You know, he, there's some fun in the novel. And one of the things you talk about is the cars. And cars are sexy. These are sexy cars anyway, these high-end cars. And you reference them to film and TV. So we've got the 61 T-Bird from Rockford and the 57 Nomad from MacGyver and also the 68 Shelby from, uh, from Bullet. I'm just wondering, were you making more of a point there about TV cops as well? Because there's this crazy sense of um, good versus evil that's just not real. Well, yes. And, and I, I think that, uh, thank you for hitting upon that. I, I mean, to me, one of my mantras, and I can't remember who I heard say this when I was very young, but the, the, the notion of, of blurring the lines between good and bad. Um, and uh, one of the things I never want to write is 
David Caruso selling right. bad, <laughs> good kids. And, you know, and it's yeah. just, a lot of crime fiction is is absolutely hooked on comeuppance and vengeance. Yeah. And certainly, certainly so we're not being challenged. We've we got this yeah. resolution thing. Yeah, and, and certainly, certainly there there are aspects of that in all my works, but um, I I don't think I you know rely on it as as the the ultimate hammer here because there are and I don't want to spoil my own book, but there are obviously um, characters who go unpunished. That to me was was very important. I I I think you know it would have been very easy to focus group this book. And give you the ending you want and my mentality around that is sort of one of the things that makes the first rocky such a great picture is mm. that he lost and if you sent that to the focus groups he would win and yeah, right. then, then you'd have a have a have a disney story but um um yeah there's there's i mean the, the my reality is i'm i'm not all good and all bad i i think i've i've you know tried to become a uh, a better person and more empathetic person um the older i've gotten but uh you know i i have my own issues and everybody does and and sure. that that is the reality and i don't i don't write role models and i don't think i write heroes um you no. know, just referring back to mitchell um you know a lot of people seem to like him and wanted to hang around him and and listen to all time country music um, but uh, you know he's responsible for a lot of people dying too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so um, I I try to stay away from the hero thing. There are enough people doing that, and there are obviously some great hero and role model books. And uh, um, but you know I look at. Are you familiar with the TV series The Rookie? Yeah. Okay. We 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 enjoy that for the most part, and and we watch that when. Um, you know, we're, we're both dealing a lot with the written word in this household. And it comes a certain time in the day where we just want to kick back and be entertained. Right. And I, I do enjoy The Rookie. I think it's a I think it's a, a fun show and a good show. Um, what they're doing there, I think, is trying to show us how the world should be and how policing should be. And, and um, you know, there are individuals there trying to make it better and, mm. and 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 i believe that that's true in the real sense um but you know there are times when i watch it and i say you know i i don't think that things are all that shine and happy in the lapd just yet you know and uh yeah but so i've always felt and this is probably you know from being a an old hard school or old uh, hard-nosed journalist is I've always felt that my role is to show you how it is. Mm. So, um, and that's that's what I'm trying to do in all my novels. And so, if if you don't like um, what you're reading, I would say take that to your elected representatives, not me. I'm just telling you how I think it is. Good way of putting it. Let's continue on that theme then for a little bit. I don't know if you know this, but there's a Baroness Casey report came out recently about the Metropolitan Police in London. And it said don't know that. So. Three things. It's institutionally racist, institutionally sexist, and unfit for purpose. So 
we've talked about the personal responsibility and kind of money and, and individuals and, and um, how they get involved in, in crime from a policing perspective. And we've talked about the political corruption and how that influences the system itself. And there's this other thing which is interesting, which is institutional corruption. And it shows up in the relationship between Cecil and Alex in the book mm. around issues like racism and sexism. You know, they're, they're part of their story. Yes. And it's, it's one of the things that struck me about this is that rather than address those issues, what institutions try to do is to get people who are, or say, of color or women to yes. adopt the blue values, those values of the police force. And that perpetuates the system and makes everybody sort of think it's all right. When in fact, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. What you just said is absolutely brilliant. And I, 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 you know, been trying to articulate that. And um, it, it, it is very important that uh, police forces and all institutions are representative of, of their communities. Um, but if you don't deal with the influence aspects that I've been talking about, um, you're, you're going to end up with the same thing. These, these people will fail too, or these people will, um, you know, it's, it's still the blue wall and yeah. it, it's still protecting the uh, bridal path community in Toronto above everyone else. And um, um, certainly uh, I mean, the, the racist aspect is as old as the day is long. And mm. when, I, when I was living in Toronto, it would, you know, it would seem like an off day if a wealthy uh, black athlete wasn't pulled over, pulling, driving right. their, their fancy car because, you know, yeah. what's or in our case, the Bishop of Southwark and things like well, that. Yeah. What's, what's a black person doing driving a fancy car like that? And um, certainly it's, it's not until recently that um you know police have on on a macro level have have properly dealt with things like like sexual assault um so you you do have a history of sexism there and um you know there are certain situations where once you compromise there's it's really you know there's either yeah, no absolutely or there's mm. it's hard to come back and so um you know, if, if if you have a racist, sexist force, um, you've you've got a whole bunch of other problems too. Yeah. That um, I'm not, you know, even as a former crime reporter, smart enough or informed enough uh, to be able to give you the whole kit and caboodle. Um, and so, therefore, there is no purpose. Um, now, I'm not, you know, having said that, I, I'm not. I, I do understand the defund the police folks um right. but i i do think you've also got to educate yourself on what would be the outcome of that and i'm i'm very familiar um through my relations here uh with the florida keys and mm. there is a jurisdiction in the florida keys that is a zero budget what they call a zero budget police force and um what that means is they have no public funding. And so, okay, well, that's all great. Um, everybody will tell you when you drive through that area, particularly with plates from another state, right. do not go 
one mile over the speed limit because they're looking they're they're not looking yeah, to they've got to raise up. cash and, yes and they yeah. have to raise they have to raise cash for their salaries so you know and they're 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 looking for a bunch of other stuff once they pull you over because anything they can get is 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 good for them so you know the the defund the police model as i know it is is no shangri-la either we we have to get to the point where we're overhauling um how how we allow people to buy influence in politics and particularly in politics as it pertains to uh, again um policy procedure and actual law in terms of how police forces uh operate and and what's at their disposal and what is their uh you know modus operandi and um uh for for obviously ever um you know that that's been compromised in such a way that that most people are not served properly by the police right a lot of people are that's the upshot of this is that yeah. the community gets poor service the community gets poor service and and uh you know the parts be... of the community get no service at all of course but parts of the, that's absolutely correct parts of this community get no service at all and and you know parts of the community are are sort of um you know cannon fodder and uh um it's it's i've i've had very even as an individual citizen um i've i've had very different experiences uh dealing with the police and and you know in in toronto i can remember we had a situation of being completely blown off as an individual citizen by an officer um whereas when i ran my little radio station in windsor and uh we had to deal with a harassment matter mm. the police because i was wearing my you know radio hat right and, and i was perceived to be as someone of of importance the police couldn't have been more helpful they couldn't have been more helpful and you know calling back checking up making sure everything was okay and and so you know, it's a socioeconomic thing or perceived socioeconomic thing. And, um, you know, they they think, or at least at a certain point in history, and, and this is obviously still true today on some level, but, um, you know, it was clear to me that they had it in their minds where whoever they thought I was in Toronto, they were not there to serve me. And whoever I was there in Windsor, they were very much there to serve me. Yeah. And so, so um, yeah. There, there's. It's troubling the way that kind of mindset develops. One of one of the aspects in the novel to bring it back to the book uh, is with Cecil's behavior is that he feels that the system won't work, and so he becomes a vigilante, yes. and and he thinks he's pursuing a righteous cause, um, which is is kind of bizarre. But the, the, one of the interesting aspects of that is we know how bad the people are he's going after. So it yeah. forces the reader to consider what's acceptable, um, not that we want this kind of rough justice, but perhaps that we are prepared to accept a lesser evil. You make readers consider that. Yes, and, and uh, you know, very much I want readers to consider that. Um, and I, I, you know, do get, particularly in terms of voting, how sometimes we must choose the lesser of two evils. Um, you know, it's, to sort of keep the the really bad evil out, and I do accept to a point um, 
that mentality and and certainly that is the mentality that Cecil's operating on and I think mm-hmm. that um you know there there will be people um cheering for him and and that was always um it was always a gamble but something I decided to go with and so um I I think if you cheered for mickey and mallory knox and natural born killers and if you cheered for slim pickens and dr strange right. you know you might find yourself cheering for cecil and and in that case at the end of the day and i've said this before i i think maybe you know you have some uh, <laughs> you have some self-reflection to do yeah issues yeah. that need addressing yeah. yeah and so so you know i i don't want to swear here but it's, it's sort of you know, sort of a bit of an intended mind frick. And um, uh, I, I I do want to press those buttons mm. and manipulate the reader a little bit to elicit a response that way. And, you know, not everybody's, um, not everybody's going to understand that. I, I think one of the things I'm dealing with, particularly in this country, is there are still all sorts of remnants left over in the mentality of writers here from the Hayes Code that mm, have right. down and bastardized. And um, criminal behavior, you cannot sympathize with criminal behavior. You cannot reward criminal behavior, which is why we get the David Caruso character, right? Mm. And and so I don't I don't want to make it easy for you. I don't want to give you the ending that you want. And and I want I want you to think about things on a macro level, on a societal level, and I want you as a reader to think about things on the micro level in terms of how you view things. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that's really gone by the wayside um, over the last 20 years or more are standards and uh, Mm. standards in journalism, standards in policing. And uh, there, there, there was an issue here, um, where there was a a right-wing commentator uh lost her job for saying that she was pro-choice and it wasn't a well-liked commentator and right. men men and women alike were cheering this and i'm watching this and i'm sitting back and i'm saying wait a minute you don't have to like her but her rights are your rights and yeah. if you can get absolutely fired having this point of view so could you and it's mm. it's not that, that you know i i i want to um you know praise this person what what i want to do is say you yeah know, you, but you it's better. amazing how people can disassociate their own personal desire for those freedoms yes. but want to restrict them in somebody else and that's yeah. that's more than ever common particularly under the trumpian age which is you know bonkers anyway well it's, it's- certainly is and i i you know live that every day over here um but uh it it really it's it's i i do want people to think about standards i do want people to think about good government and i do want people to think about themselves and um you know their knee-jerk reactions i'm i'm of an age where uh, and i'm you know i'm i'm getting to the point where i'm going to be a geezer pretty soon and uh um you know back in the day if i was upset about something i'd have to sit down and write a letter or type a letter put it in an envelope address the letter put a stamp on it the next day bring it to the mailbox and by then i was usually not as excited 
as I was the day before. And I think particularly with social media, um, you know, people are just, they're becoming aware of something. They get a hold of a, a kernel of a truth and um yeah and it's amazing where that can actually go yeah and they're 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 going off half cocked without as i don't i don't want to stifle your freedom of expression but perhaps you want to give this a little consideration before you start shooting your mouth off and um and 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 so that, that is something i'm i'm trying to do in the book um you know it's it's uh it's it's important to me as I'm a 80s 90s Canadian social democrat which would be right. somewhat similar to your labor party and um um I you know I I do think of things through uh, a government lens and um you know when something comes up when you've got a proposal I want to know your schedule your um budget uh, your funding source and your timeline and all that stuff. And I'm asking all this, all the, all the difficult questions. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think we need to do more of that, particularly in this country. I mean, we don't, we don't talk about much of anything that's important. We have, we have partisan wars. I think, I think and, there's more um, rubbish all over the world. You know, I mean, yeah. we're having it today. We've got Boris Johnson who was caught out lying. He's been told by a committee of parliament. They're very honest people that he was caught out lying. And his argument is just, nonsense they're lying you know no no real argument no rebut just he puts it out there because his supporters will be happy to accept that and then it's as far and that's the trumpian thing as well yes is the uh this is pre uh 9-11 i'm just wondering how much things changed i I, you know what it it reminded me of one thing which was that the german police in the 1970s upgraded and changed and became a much more um computer savvy police force and so on and people were well why would that be it's not related to crime it was related to bader meinhof and the red army faction a very small group of people who held this political view that was so opposed to the system the system reacted in such a way that it beefed up its police force as i said not because crime was an issue but because they wanted to tackle this one particular political problem well it, it, it is it is political it is, mm. and this is what happens when our police chiefs and our forces go political. And and I think, you know, again, just getting back to representation thing, there's, there's one thing I want completely out, police forces, uh, public institutions, um, and certainly, you know, my own party, uh, when we were in power that one time, um, right. we appointed, we appointed uh, a bunch of partisans. And um, when 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 your police chief becomes a politician, um, that sort of trickles down, and uh, your your civil service, your your police officers become political, and and that is that is where things go go sideways, and um, and that is where things become populist. And that is where groups are targeted and exploited, uh, just as this country did during the, the obviously to the detriment of um, probably millions of people in terms of the war on drugs situation, how that yeah, was yeah. dealt with here. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I want civil servants. I don't want politicians in civil service positions. Um, I don't care whether it's yeah, my party no, or your party or the other guy's party. 
um, I, I want that out of the civil service. And uh, in, in fact, in, in Ontario, where I'm from, um, you at last check, anyways, you had all kinds of human rights at work, mm. but you do not, not have political rights. Mm. So, um, you know, if, if you're if you're putting posters up for what was my party, the NDP, or any other party, um, you know, it's certainly within the law that that your supervisor comes over and says, you know, get rid of that. And uh, I, I, I do think, you know, we need to get back to a civil service that strives to serve all the people. Yes. And um, I realize that that's uh, a pretty, pretty big ask, but that is the job and that's the way it was supposed to be. And we, we don't have that now. We didn't have that in pre 9-11. And uh, that is what we're to me that is what you have to strive for um in terms of 9-11 in particular i i've said a number of times i i i don't think that that was the end of innocence it was the end of a perceived innocence right and i think 9-11 sort of ripped the cover off that and exposed that you know particularly in terms of um in the wake of that i can remember doing doing stories on this um you know, sort sort of love the racial targeting mm. of of people in the wake of nine eleven, and and you know again we're we're not we're we're politicizing this we're we're scapegoating people yeah and, absolutely um, we're not making things better we're just trying to make people think that we're making things better and keeping yeah safe but at the actually. same time you're actually reinforcing lines and making things worse yeah. Exactly. You are making things worse when you react that way and, and when you have politicians in these positions. Mm. Let's lighten it up a little bit then. Had a good old go at the police. Um, and it, I, my point about that is, you know, I, I said about the institutional corruption. I think I'm happy to accept that there are thousands and thousands of policemen all over the world who go about their job and they try to do a really good job. And some of them do a brilliant job. Yes. But it has to be understood within the context of this institution. And unless we address that, you can't just say, well, there's a couple of bad guys and the rest of them are good guys. That's what we've got to get away from. And that's been a particular problem for British crime fiction. We are perhaps the least um, critical of our police force in our fiction, even though you get, you know, you kind of get bad cops, but you don't get bad systems. And it's that that I think. And that's what I liked about your book, because you address that directly. We get to see the overall and how everybody gets affected by this and how it how it affects society. Anyway, I said that we'd lighten it, didn't I? What I was going to ask you was, what's next then, Fern? Oh well, I'm I've I've Paul, I've done I've done five books in five years, and part of the reason I I did that is I wanted it wasn't that any of these were rushed, obviously, with all the years of consideration that I've given them, but I do think there are some windows that are closing, and I wanted to get those out before anything right. else happened and um so i'm i'm pleased with that i'm i'm working on an anthology that i would say i'm the second chair on and it's not for me to announce that yet okay fair enough i'm, I'm working on a, a short story and uh i'll be going back into my archives um there there are a few things that um um i may pull out and and turn into something uh full length and i'm i'm really i i'm i'm just at the point where as a writer i i don't want to do another book next year right. um 
because I've, you know, I think the world can catch up to the five Vern Smith books over this time and it'll be okay. Um, but I, I will be back with something else. I'm putting a lot of effort on the curation side right now. Right. And uh, I've, I've, um, I brought in uh, Zephaniah Sewell. He'll have a couple of books coming out with Run Amok, and he was one of the contributors to Jack. It actually won't be a, a crime story proper. Um, uh, Christine Boyer, another one of the the writers from Jack, and Andrew. Uh, yeah. Miller. And so, so I, I'm doing a lot on the curation side right now, and sort of um, once the summer's over. And the the promo for this is is sort of wrapped. Um, I'm I'm just going to pull back in the shadows and work on that stuff. And, and it's really it's 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 actually a more comfortable place for me to work. Um, I'm you know I when I worked in politics I was a backroom boy and I I liked that. I never wanted to run for office, but I wanted to be involved and and have some say about how we do mm. things. That sort of um, what I'm going to focus on for the next year in terms of my work at Run Amok and my work on this manuscript, but I will be back with something. And I, to be completely honest, I haven't decided what's that, what that's going to be. Um, I haven't decided if I'm going to still work in the past or I'm going to put my big boy pants on and write about 2023 yet. Uh, but we'll see. And, 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 and really, I mean, this is, this has been a bit of a sprint for me and um it's is very my writing process is not a health club yeah you, you need uh, a bit of time to decompress I, I, yeah i i need a year year without a book and I'll, I'll be back i'm just not sure what it's going to be with okay one last question then how about a recommendation something you've read recently maybe okay okay um well i, I just i want to preface this by saying is because I've been putting out so much of my own work, I'm I'm a little bit delinquent on right. uh, my my to be read list is. To and of course, working as an editor, that's that's yeah, another yeah, thing that takes yeah. away from yeah. pleasure so, reading. You know, you know. So I haven't read everything, but I I have to tell you, um, uh, there there were two things that that I was absolutely delighted with. Um, and I'll give them to you both. One is uh, A.B. Patterson, Australian crime writer and former um, police officer, corruption officer, has written a great collection of uh, Harry Kenmar stories. Right. Uh, Harry Kenmar, P.I., and uh, it's dirty and naughty, and I just loved it, and I found myself laughing out loud and smiling, and the stories were quite smart. And so I would say... Uh, Harry Kenmar, P.I. Um, by A.B. Patterson. The other great thing I read, and it was um, it was a collection of three novellas, uh, L.A. Stories um, by Alex Isaac, uh, Andrew Miller, and Scotch Rutherford. Uh, right. All the stories are set in 1979. It's a grindhouse theme, and the stories, I've never seen three authors do this with significant works are interconnected some of the characters appear right. in all stories yeah that and, is unusual yeah and that's on uncle b publications and, and that was um that was you know to me it was it was it was the greatest thing i read last year or this year um and and it really uh it was visceral it was smart and uh they went to play 
places where I dare not tread, and that always amuses me. So um, I would say, yeah, uh, L.A. Stories by those three writers, Alex Isaac, Scotch Rutherford, Andrew Miller, and uh, Harry Kenmar, P.I., uh, the collection from A.B. Patterson from Australia. Right. I'm going to put that on the program notes so people can get a chance to look at those, look those up if they want to. I, I would appreciate I appreciate if you did that. I mean, I liked L.A. stories so much. I bought five more copies and have been, you know, giving well, I'll tell own. you what, then I won't just put it on the program notes. I'll put a link to it I to an independent bookshop. And if people want to buy it, they can actually do that, too. Then how's that? I, I would appreciate that. I came to it through um, Andrew Miller, who was one of the jacked authors. And right. as I mentioned, we've we've picked up his his novel. And so I, you know, I'm just a fan of Andrew Miller. I wanted to read Andrew Miller. And now I'm a fan of, of Alex Isaac and Scotch Rutherford as well. Yeah. Thank you very much, Vern. That's been brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's been fun. And uh, I look, look forward to talking to you again someday. I'm sure we will. Well, a big thank you to Fern Smith for a fascinating chat about scratching the flint and a whole load of other topics as well, of course. If you want to buy the book, I'm sure you can get it from good book outlets, but you can get it from us by clicking the link on the program notes and that will take you direct to Run Amok Books and you can get it there. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. I'll be back with another interview very shortly, but in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>